Osoblevo za presvetu, prečesto preblagoslovenu, slavnu vladečicu našu Bohorodicu i presnodivo Mariju. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. O heavenly the King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, water in all places and fillest all things, Treasury of blessings and Giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls a good one. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudator Jesus Christus in Sequila. This is Timothy Flanders with the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King, and I'm very happy to be joined today once again by Dr. Matthew Minard. Dr. Minard, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I wanted to say Slava Noviki to you. Slava but... Noviki. I, I, don't the, I don't know the Slavic answer to that. Glory forever. But uh... That's it. Well, that's it. Slava Noviki. Uh, oh, Slava Noviki yeah. is the, is that's the answer. answer. Right? That's the response. So I'll take yeah, your... The, um... Yes, I, I get I get people commenting in Latin. They're like, "Wait a second, it's not Laudator Jesus Christus; it's Laudate Jesus Christus." I just just so everyone knows, Laudator Jesus Christus means "May Jesus Christ be praised," and the Eastern version is just "Glory to Jesus Christ," and you answer "Glory forever." So it's just variations on the same thing. Anyways, we're we're talking today about da, uh, Father Gary Gulagrange's teacher. That is Father Ambroise Galde, and together with co-host Nicholas Cavazos of the Traditional Thomas. Nicholas, how you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks for letting me on. Excellent. We do. If you go over to the Traditional Thomas, there's a there's a number of good uh, content you've done recently on Gary Lagrange as well. You're going through. Tell us about the Sapiencia series on Gary Goo that you're doing. Yeah, so I'm doing a very ambitious series, but it's a, basically a line-by-line -line exposition of St. Thomas's Summa using the classic tract manual, just going through the commentaries of Father Reginald Gary Lagrange. So we've gone through three or four episodes now, uh, mainly just a bunch of introductory work, and we're in his larger introduction on the history and methodology of Thomism. And so, Excellent. yeah, it's a great series. Great. Yeah. So take a look at the traditional Thomist. And uh, Dr. Minard, what's new with you? What are you working on? What do you want to promote before we get into Garday? Well, it's you know, new things. It's the beginning of a semester. So I'm busy getting ready for classes and I'm doing a bit of academic work, uh, writing a monograph on something I, I wrote back in 2017, an article academic wise. Um, but if I wanted to, if I wanted to promote anything, you know, I guess it's like we're coming up closer to uh, uh, Christmas. I should promote my, my own uh, moral theology text, you know, and it's very much in line with some some things that we talked about and we'll be talking about, though, in Garday, because um, in some ways I, I think of my book as being a, a far echo of Garday's The True Christian Life, which I can also promote because I, I did translate that for CUA Press. But I'm sure it'll come up later on because it plays a pretty interesting place in, in the history of Ambrose Garday, which I'm going to anglicize his name just for the sake of not slipping in and out of a French sounding voice. Um and it plays an interesting uh, role in his overall sets of works. Historically, it's kind of at a pivotal point there. But we'll talk more about that as we go on. 
Excellent. So Father Reginald Gary Grange is he's born in the late 19th century. Now, Garday is before that. Right. He's uh, right. a little biographical yeah. sketch. Yeah. So uh, Father Garday is born in 1859, uh, dies in dies in 1931. So I like to think of him as being like a half generation older than Garigou, but probably you could say really. Uh, yeah, I would say half generation. It's odd because, you know, Garigou lives into the 60s. Um, but um, Father Garday is more like, you know, if you're going, so when um, Garigou is going through his uh, studies at the Sorbonne for philosophy, he's under the, his direct superior is Garday because Garday is the region of, uh, region of studies for the Parisian uh, Dominicans at the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century. Um, and Garrigue uh, is writing back and forth to him. And, and so I think somewhat of Garday as being like the, I'd have to check the exact, what would the exact age be? He'd be, you know, in his late thirties when Garrigue's in his twenties there. Right. So you're, you're sort of like the, like the older, like the, the new generation of leaders in the order. Right. Who's however, not, you know, a whole, a whole generation older than those whom they're placed over at the time. So he, he's like a weird, it's like a liminal point between the two, gen, like a generation earlier than Garrigou. So there, there are a lot of ways, as we'll see when we talk, that Father Garday is deeply involved in questions that arise out of the modernist crisis, but his own intellectual formation occurs a teeny bit earlier than Garrigou's. Um, he's going to be, you know, living just at the very cusp of the, the beginning of the Leonine uh, Thomistic uh, updates uh, following on Eterni Patris. Okay, and we, and we've you and I have talked a little bit about this period and how the church is really recovering from the French Revolution and all this destruction of its own infrastructure through the seizure of all these Jesuit universities and other universities and everything, the secular takeovers. Um, and then we have this r sort of rebirth of Thomism, the Thomas revival with uh, Pope Leo. And what is Garday's role in this whole movement, uh, looking at it in the, in the big picture? Yeah, so I think the best way to think of it is, let's even take the date. I've got some of my notes here, which are based on his his nephew's uh, bibliography and and brief biography that were published upon his death. Um, he he started teaching uh, at the for or you know at the studium, which moved around over a course of twenty years or so. Uh, the Parisian studium, because of the the secularist. Uh, suppressions of religious orders or, or at least you know significant curbing thereof and he's teaching from uh the the mid 80s 84 onward so you're looking after eterni patris is um you know in in effect the dominicans have maintained uh in part thanks to works like a uh, hundred and some years earlier uh Arts, uh summa sancti tome at least connections with their old tra tradition of thomism uh, but Garday actually teaches after he begins by teaching kind of what we would think of as theological methodology for a few years. Uh, it, it's actually a chair in uh, De Locis Theologicis is what he's teaching. Um, and then he he ends up teaching just a theological cycle is where he begins, not publishing anything. He's just basically doing, you know, probably a little quicker than you can do on a podcast, Nicholas, a, a walkthrough for the students across their years of intellectual formation for the priesthood, the Summa Theologiae. Um, I don't remember. I don't want to be wrong here. I think it's at least two full curses of that that he does over over a course of uh, 
I, I would have to, I would have to double check this. I didn't prep this. I, I, I would think it's a three-year program like the STB is now. Um, but he does at least a couple of basically just doing the whole of the Summa Theologiae with attendant documents from the tradition, um, you know, from the other, from the commentators in the Dominican tradition uh, at his fingertips. And he does that up until the time that he becomes, uh, you know, the, the region, region of studies. And even, I guess, even during, during that time, um, he, I mean, he probably as well, but he becomes, becomes the region of studies uh, at, the, at the turn of the century, early 20th century, um, and becomes the first regent whenever the, this house moves to the Salchoir in uh, Belgium, which for good or ill, he then, you know, he, he becomes tied up, which we can or can't, we can choose not to. He becomes tied up historically with figures like Chenu, uh, Marie-Dominique Chenu, who looks at Gardet. It's very strange. He looks at Gardet as being his master. And uh, it's hard to sort of understand, given the later career of Chenu, um, and given how anti-modernist um, Gardet was. I mean, we can't call Chenu a pure modernist of the turn of the century, but he's, he's deeply in a sort of a line of historicism that is problematic. But, you know, for our purposes, we can just think of think of the idea of him being then region of studies after teaching sort of the full curses of Thomistic uh, theology after a few years. And it's only with the founding of the Revue Thomiste, which he's part of uh, at the very end of the middle of the 1890s, which is a, uh, you know, it's a publication, a, a journal uh, that's that's run nowadays by the Toulouse Dominicans. Um he then begins his his writing career first in in the form of articles and articles for the uh, Dictionnaire de Theologie Catholique, and then eventually in the form of a uh, series of monographs uh, that are that will come to as we eventually do the bibliography. And can you give end a... his life? I should oh. say that he eventually then in the in the nineteen uh, teens uh, goes to do more, almost exclusively pastoral work and preaching for. Um, you know, uh, cloistered communities and whatnot uh, in Paris, in the Paris. He goes back to Paris. So now can you give us a little bit of the geography of this time period? Because you mentioned a few places there. Yeah, I just want to be clear because I'm not entirely clear as to where each place is, because I know that Garigou is in Rome for 50 years from and that that's the um, it's not, is it the Angelicum? I can't remember which. Yeah, he's at the Angelicum. It is the Angelicum. Or it would have been, you know, just the pontifical. pontifical okay. time, but that's the, the Roman school. And then yeah. you mentioned Gardet is up uh, over the Alps. He's in, first he's in he, France and then he's in Belgium. And then in Belgium, yeah. So, I mean, for some years he's in Flavigny uh, in uh, the Golden Coast or Couture. Um, But then whenever they have to move the in the um, studium to, to Ghent, in in belgium and then the south Schwar, um in 1903 and 1904 he's in belgium now that means also he's he's directing garagu while garagu's in studies from from uh well i guess he would have been in flavigny at the time actually um but then most of the the time that garagu teaches for a little bit at the south Schwar, he's he would be there with him in belgium but then very quickly moves to Rome because of some some needs that the order just needed a professor in rome and that's how garagu ends up there I see. Um, so it's it's weird to think of this. This is all the Parisian Dominican province, but it's they're they're being moved around. The studium is being moved around because of the politics of France at the time. 
Oh, okay. Yes, that was yeah. this was right during the controversy with the Third Republic and the the separation of church and state. Exactly. Pius the Tenth revoked. Yeah, exactly. a bunch of controversy going. Okay. Yeah, and so, um, and so you know during during the period where Gardet is still teaching and is not in Paris, uh, which is going to be the turn of the century. So just the early time Garagou's in Rome from 1909 onward um, until mid 19 teens. You've got the Belgium and Rome, and then Gardet is going to be in Paris then for the rest of his life, writing, but also then doing more, like I said, more pastoral and spiritual work. Okay, let me ask one more question before I kick it over to Nicholas. Um, so can you introduce us to the relationship then? <laughs> because Gary Gu has this famous relationship with Carol Wojtyla because he directs Carol Wojtyla's um, first PhD. Um, but then, so tell us about the relationship between Gardet and Gary Gu. Sure. The strongest one, the one I know the most of, because there's a documentary history of it that is placed in the Angelicum um, periodical at the death of Garigou, is the relationship that he had with Gardet personally while he, Garigou, was going to the Sorbonne in Paris for his studies um, as, you know, after being ordained. Um, so there's a series of letters where he's lament. I mean, it's funny to see young Garigou lamenting what it's like to go through the, the um, process at the Sorbonne. I mean, first of all, secular readers of Aristotle frustrating him, the amount of time that's being spent, you know, just on the learning to do your exposition for, you know, exposition in Latin for your, your theses and whatnot. Um, you know, he's worn out and complaining to Gardet in these uh, letters. Um, but, you know, he regularly asks Gardet, there's something he was writing on, oh, related to the metaphysics of creation or something. And he says to him, you know, I remember notes from whenever you taught a class, which must have been in the sequence then at during the time that Garigou was in his priestly formation studies. Can you send me those notes? And so then you you see secondhand the letter from, there's no letter from Gardet in there. It's just Garigou's letters. Then you see the thank you for getting getting those documents and whatnot. So they're relating to each other both, both as kind of, we could say, director of st studies, making sure a young Dominican... Um, you know, finishes his program so he can come back and teach, but also too then as as a kind of disciple to, to someone who taught him in, in in his own intellectual formation for the priesthood. And then thereafter, they're, because they're not totally a generation apart, there's a bit of uh, parallelism where then they are they're discussing each other just in the context of mutual citations and texts. You know, so you'll you'll run into Garigou in in God and his his essence and his uh well, he might not do it there. He does it somewhere later because it's going to require for the timeline to work here, maybe a little bit different. But he'll disagree with Gardet on some little picayune bit about the metaphysical constitutive of, of the Godhead. Of course, he notes that Gardet is basically doing the same thing as John of St. Thomas. And so they don't, you know, they're not deeply disagreeing. But he approaches him also as an intellectual peer in some ways. And you'll run across uh, him citing Gardet very warmly in his um, spiritual works because there's, there's much that, that flows together between Gardet's spiritual theology and his own. And once again, little things they disagree on, but it's technical things of whether or not in all cases there must be a word spoken by the intellect, even in the cases of self-knowledge by the angels and <laughs> the mystical experience. I mean, it's that much. Well, angels dancing on a pin? So. Yeah. And so he, uh, he, he, and even there, he's very deferential. You know, you barely know he's disagreeing <laughs> with Carte. Um, so that's sort of the relationship. It's like someone who helped, who was it'd be like a younger professor of if, that you would have in seminary. You know, it would be somewhat like some of the younger guys I have in seminary. I mean, now as I finally approach 40, I get to be thinking of myself as middle age. But like when I was 35 and teaching them, you know, you have a younger professor. And then, you know, if if I were, but I wasn't directing their studies, you know, that's sort of how their, their relationship begins. And then, you know, um, 
they're they're not kind of overlapping in the midst of like all the scholastic debates in the Roman world because Gardet goes on and does pastoral work. Um, but the influence that Gardet has on Garrigou is immense when it comes to the questions that arise in the modernist crisis. Um, the the idea of apologetics and how um, dogmas develop, all of that's pretty much uh, hom homogeneous between the two of them, we might say. Now, you know, I've heard accounts where it was actually Garrigou that sort of influenced Gardet on this kind of, you know, there was a little bit of mutual influence. Um, but it's clear that because apologetics is very important for how Garrigou approaches De Revelazione, which we discussed last time, it, that whole set of questions is important for how Garrigou approaches the whole of the modernist crisis. Um, and he would have been formed in that in his studium by Gardet, who's in line with some other slightly older figures um, that are all kind of, they're all sort of in line. So I, I think it's fair to say that Gardet's view of apologetics in the end influences Garrigou primarily, even if Garrigou on some points slightly influences Gardet upstream. So I'm just tipping my hat to someone I know who, who sort of in, insists that there was a little bit of Garrigou's discussion of common sense, which also influenced Gardet, but I'm very sure that Gardet's uh, work on apologetics, which went through a couple, two editions majorly and then was reprinted in a third edition, but the second edition kind of was his final articulation of the distinction between rational credibility and the Santa faith. That was all, I think, operative when he was teaching, uh, even in formation to the, this, the members of the studium. So, you know, he's, it's interesting. That means that Gardet, in his methodology of, of how to do, um, you know, how to think of faith and then theology uh, was of inf influence on Garrigou, which makes it very strange when you think that later people like Chenu say Gardet's methodology and his approach to, you know, doctrine and dogma, you know, really is sort of uh, in line with how I've taken, we've taken over Thomism in this much more historicist line. Um, so it's just interesting. I, I'd like to do a whole like uh, Dr. John Kerwin and I have said that it would be nice to to say that, you know, Garrigou is the real Gardet heir and get people to just admit that. So anyway, sorry, it's a little bit of all about and a little bit of inside baseball. Sorry, I thought I thought coming in, I thought we're going to do works. It can keep we can keep this kind of very uh, understandable. So I apologize for a little bit of all over. No, it works perfect. Actually, your last comment is basically what I was wanting to address, which is so I had never heard of Gardet essentially before this last show that we had did. And so I went and did a bunch of kind of just biographical research and then seeing that Marie Dominique Chenu, that was the name that kept coming up in every single result that I found and mm -hmm. how essentially, as you were saying, he had, he was claiming to have such a profound influence upon his life. I was wondering if you could touch to that and talk about how accurate that is or how inaccurate that is. So he did in the sense that at the turn of the century, Gardet was involved with reforming, with several other Dominicans, reforming the the studies at the, the South Shoire. And then, for you know, as part of then what would have influenced certain elements of the Dominican order of the time. I mean, I don't remember how broad, how universally that went on, but he definitely was involved in the Parisian and Francophone updates to how the Dominicans did their priestly formation and then their just theology faculties. And that's around the time that uh, Chenu would have been going through his studies. Um, and so I have no doubt that, you know, in the course of those lectures, probably, you know, there there's a lot of, there's a lot of good traditional Thomism in the young Chenu. And Garrigou wanted Chenu to be his, his successor. Now, Chenu, however, 
remembered his time studying under Father Gardet during that first, you know, I guess it'd be the first decade of the 20th century or so. He remembers it as focusing on the importance of historical studies, for example. And Chanu takes that then in the direction. There are kind of two Chanus. There's a Chanu that's involved with the worker priests and all of this sort of, uh, th this kind of thing that feels far more closer to the, the world of Gaudium et Spes, perhaps, of Vatican II. There's also the medievalist Chanu. Um, and that's why he and Gilson were so close. And he saw himself as having already gotten from Gardet this appreciation for history and sources during his time in formation, which is, pro you know, probably true because, you know, they were trying to to move away from certain elements of merely sticking at the manual level, you know, so to, to engage with the, the tradition more, which makes complete sense. And we'll eventually, when we start talking about his works, we'll see this as one of his major, major themes. Makes complete sense for the man who began his teaching career teaching the De Locis Theologicis, which is the on the roughly on theological sources. And so, you know, an appreciation for positive theology and the theology of sources and how you use scripture tradition and and you know, then even extrinsic sources like philosophical reasoning. How do you use those in theology were questions that animated Garde early on. And he actually wrote one of the, it's still, there aren't a lot of good write-ups of the history of the De Locis Theologici's history. And his article in the French Dictionary of the Catholic Theology is a very good introduction to that, that genre, which comes out of the, the early 17th century onward. It's a treatise that's, that's kind of underappreciated because you only see it, like if you get the, the Spanish Jesuits, you know, there's the Summa Sacra Theologiae, it doesn't have a very long discussion of De Locis Theologici's. Whereas, for instance, here, this comes out of one of the teachers who would have been like teachers of Gardet's generation. You have Berthier, who was involved in some of the, I think, the early Leonine edition stuff on, Thoma, on uh, Thomas's works, has a treatise on it that's 600-some pages, closely, closely written text, too. So, you know, it's all, all this discussion coming out of Melchior Cano, who's the original Dominican who starts this. Um, how do we deal with all of the various 10 places we can get our, our theological speculation from? Scripture, tradition, magisterium, the, how, what's the role, what is the weight of the fathers and, and, the theolo and theologians and so forth? So that's a kind of a, that's rant, but the point of that is then the fact that he's teaching that kind of thing, worried about the sources, makes sense that there, were there was historical um, updating of the curriculum at his time as the head of the region of studies. But then I think it was more the rise of like this continued rise of an interest in his, the history of thought that Chanu sort of read back his own predilections into Garde. Because up till the last years that Garde is writing, he's definitely drawing on the Thomas tradition. In his mystical theology, he's very much in line with John of St. Thomas on the gifts of the Holy Spirit just openly without feeling like he has to defend himself, which is a very different approach to Thomism than Chanu. You know, Chanu begins with that, that kind of line of saying, we're going to go back and read Thomas just himself directly, uh, you know, to appreciate him in his medieval context, et cetera, uh, which is fine. But where that ends up sometimes is then as soon as you start addressing new questions, you become the new beginning of the commentary tradition. This is why I stand very firmly against those, even among traditional Catholics, who say, oh, we need to just read Thomas's texts. I mean, that's 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 foolishness. Um, 
there, there have been others who've thought on this. You just have to know the best of those who are in the tradition. I just happen to think that's the Thomistic school. And Garde was a member of that. So that's a long answer. But I mean, that's, you know, there you have it. <laughs> no, I, I fully agree. And one other thing, just of seed, on doctrinal development, Garde did seem to lean somewhat in the direction of Francisco Miransola on one thing um, and away from Garigou and Reginald Schultes. And Chenu was in agreement with Maransola, and many others were too, even Garigou's student, um, Duranzo, I think, you know, in some ways. But it's a it's a question of what can be defined as a th can theological conclusions be defined or not. Um, but that's only somewhat clear to me. So maybe Chenu sees that and then immediately thinks they agree on everything else. You know, he was my teacher and I loved him and we got along well and I wrote an introduction to one of his editions. And so I'm his disciple. Well, you were, but you were also Garigou Lagrange's disciple and you never showed that kind of filial piety to him. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes absolute sense. Right. I guess, I guess my second question is, unless Mr. Flanders has one, cause I see him digging around in the book. Uh, <laughs> I, my second one was essentially, so if Sunu is not the inheritor and Garagu is what, if you could maybe point down, was there one moment, one piece of uh, like text, if you will, that really influenced Garagu from his teacher? Yeah, well, I mean, the the text, I think, or at least the lectures probably that led up to it, you know, because it's drawing the exact con the exact conditions of when things were published, because what I'm about to show you was published right around in its first edition, right around the same time as Sense Camoon. So in some ways, it's the lectures at when he's in school that influence him. Right. But the the work, La Credibilité et l'Apologétique. Now, this is, I think this is a first edition. The second edition is actually the, the definitive one. Um it's this is a series of lectures that in the end sets this, the exact same stage up that Garagou argues for in De Revelazione. Now, you know, and so you'll find Garagou citing it a lot. And because that whole question of apologetics deals with the faith reason questions, um, and, you know, Garde really worries about finessing a couple things he says on that point, you know, I think that that's probably one of these deep lines that influenced uh, Garagou. I think he probably got from Garte and the way they ran the Salchoir at the time and appreciation for the school, you know, probably, I mean, but that's more of a thing that, you know, I don't have documentary tracings of that. And I don't even know what's available in Europe that way to see the way that those lectures that he would have gotten back then were of influence on him. Um, he recounts not merely from Garde's writing, but his teaching when Garde died, he said, you know, Garde was, Father Garde was very good. Garigou wrote a, an in memoriam in the review Tomist uh, whenever Garde died. Um, he said, you know, th there are certain commentators on St. Thomas who know how to look at the overwhelming mountain range that is St. Thomas's thought and can immediately tell you if you, if you can remember that, 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 and that, you know, pillar or the uh, pillar that, that, that are pinnacle, those summits, um, you'll understand what's going on with the geography of the mountain range that like he had a, an ability to do that. Um, and I do think that's true. Having, having translated, um, the work of his spiritual theology, um, he spends an immense amount of time, for instance, on the virtue of religion. Um, but in some ways, it sets everything else in, in line regarding big swaths of the virtue of justice, the way he does it. Or he has this beautiful essay on divinization in that volume. And he lays out how you shouldn't merely think of the Christian life as either being, you know, merely an escape from hell or the best morality or even merely a religious life that is is union and divinization. And I mean, you won't understand the theological virtues or grace if you don't understand that. Um, but he does it in a way that has such crystalline clarity that he, he kind of gets to those principles really well. So I think the lectures did that. 
practically um, credibilité apologétique, and then a little bit more distantly, but they're in they're in uh, agreement, and he's and Garigou cites him, but more at the level of being almost like a peer. Um, is the work Le Tonnerre Révélé et la Théologie, and you'll even see this later edition. You see, because the because the Salchoir was uh, you know would have been well, it was they would have been involved with Serf, who's the publisher for the Parisian Dominicans, Chenu, who's there at the Salchoir, you know, writes the preface to it. But this is the last reprint of of what had already been printed in multiple editions before that. And in this volume, Gardet goes through basically an argument on behalf of, you know, the fixity of our notions, how how our uh, knowledge is taken up by revealed statements, how they can be said to develop, but only in a way that's in, you know, homogenous connection to what has already been stated, and then how faith is related to the theological task. It's a good example. It's, I think, too technical, but I, I think that's an example of where uh, someone like Chenu didn't take seriously enough that Gardet was more in line, almost too much so, with the older Thomas tradition regarding the distinction between faith and theology, which Chenu tends to, in my opinion, slur together. Gardet separate, does make appropriate separations while noting the homogeneous connection between the two. Um, but that's what this volume is about. And so you can feel that idea of methodology is very much on his in his in his mind if you're writing things like this what is the nature of the ascent of highest ascent that reason can have to the the revealed truths what is the nature of the datum of revealed truth kind of in a way how do we describe revealed truth so we understand it's supernatural and revealed but then how is that articulated in theology those were both an influence on garrigo so maybe just to mention them and we can be done i wish that that it had been of more influence on Garrigou that the the works that Gardet did a little bit earlier on theological sources is a little book that's from some articles um, and a di discussion of probability. But he, it, it just Garrigou, uh, Garrigou never taught that stuff. So it just he cites it, but he doesn't really engage with it deeply. I just wish he would have engaged with it more because I would have loved to have had Garrigou's clarity come downstream. So. Yeah, those are those are sort of uh, in the world of speculative theology, at least the things of of influence. When it comes to spiritual theology, it's more like they're both in the same room of what all the Dominicans are doing with divinization at the time. So the, the, the I'm sure there's some influence, but there are lots of other influences also working on Garrigou, which are the same ones that probably are influencing our day at the same time too. So, okay, so the um, Garde's anti-modernism. Yep is what brings him together with uh, Gary Goo and distinguishes him from Chanu. Yes. Um, great. I mean, great summary in that way, Timothy, that someone has to make sure when you're interviewing, it's like asking a student a question, fix it. So everyone understands what. In the world. <laughs> well, I, I just want to remind everyone to go to Matthew Minard's website, which here it is. Uh, here's, if you go to books, I was just going to start with uh sense commune, which you had just mentioned. Yeah which is published called, uh, under the title Thomistic Common Sense. Here's the cover. Um, so how is this book, uh, so is this very much Garday in this book then? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it in parallel. I mean, I'd have to check and see if he cites Garday anywhere in there actually, right? This is around the same time Garday is giving le his lectures on credibility and apologetics. Um, but the same sort of thing that Gardet does in, in Le Donne Crevelet, which is just within a couple years after this is published, um, 
is is the the same kind of approach to the modernist crisis. A little bit of a different angle and worried about some different things. Um, but in the end, they're both concerned with showing both the fact that our, our knowledge is not completely relative and relativistic and that 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 assertion of kind of a just, you know, broad common sense realism is necessary in order to defend the possibility of revelation as well as its fixity uh, over time that, that you don't fall into a kind of modernist malaise of of just, you know, each generation or every age having its own different articulation of the faith. So we live very much in a neo-modernist crisis. Can you break down some of the most basic points of Garday and Gary Gu's anti-modernism, which would allow us to recognize neo-modernism when we see it? Yeah. So the first and most central building block is at the level of philosophy. Although modern, you know, the question of modernism in the, you know, technical sense that that takes on in Catholic circles following on pious tense encyclical or theological philosophically the most important first step that someone has to make is basically to defend the very possibility of our our knowledge having fixity and not being merely relative that we grasp not only the essences of things but of realities right even of virtues um uh principle principles that fall, fall uh or deal with you know kind of the metaphysical principles of what things are which are you know the principles of reality that in other words our knowledge articulates the way that things are and the way that they cannot the way they cannot not be sorry i had to make sure i got my negatives right <laughs> it sounds really abstract but it's you know our what we can we have many things we affirm that are kind of experimental and opinionative right there's a whole domain of that where we're not sure and we have only opinions but they're also are domains of truths and principles that we do we can articulate and conclusions that we can draw, which are certain and unchanging, and that will be as true today as they were a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, and will be the same into the future. That we can have absolute affirmations. That's closer to how Garde's language is, because he's, he's being a little less technical in this book because he's addressing students. It's from lectures. It's not you know what I mean. It doesn't have the same feel as uh, Garrigou's. I'm writing from Rome kind of text in that regard, but I can make absolute affirmations regarding reality that actually hold. So, so just, just, yep. so point one is there is a, such a thing as called reality. Mm -hmm. uh, we can know what this reality is. And not only that, there are things in reality, which are totally fixing. So fixated. So for this, example, justice itself, justice yeah. is a real thing. It's reality. It never changes. It's just, there's not a, uh, I can, I can make this statement and it will hold forever. And I can argue on behalf of it um, by way of at least a reduction to absurdity that human action must render to others and other institutions what is owed to them. Right. Okay. And, you know, that kind of knowledge can be had in a way that is fixed and forever the same. Most famous right. examples would be more like at the level of metaphysics that wherever, as long as I explain to you what I mean by effect, Every effect has a cause. I mean, you just, as long as you understand those terms, which maybe I have to work to get you to understand them, as soon as you talk about an effect, you're talking about that which is dependent upon a cause. So, and then that can expand more and more and more. Um, but okay, we could do this in in all sorts of ways, in, in philosophical language, uh, in languages, of, even of the sciences. But yeah, we have knowledge that's also like, you know, there are many opinions that we have. And actually, Gardet is very good on that. 
he, he, he studied that because he had to study it in the context of, of theological methodology. But nonetheless, he you know, asserts, we have to say there are certain affirmations, nonetheless, we can have that are unchanging, right? In a sense, if you do that, you've already undercut the modernism because, because theological modernism is, is based pretty deeply on the idea that our knowledge is, is at best a tool that we use to filter through reality, but it doesn't necessarily relate to reality, right? So in our cultural condition that we share together, Timothy, we call, you know, a certain set of actions just. There's no justice in itself. This is Platonism, they'd say, right? This is Platonizing, you know, justice in itself in the heavens ideas, you know, but but we have a way of acting together that we know is commodious and it, it you know, it fits the our intuitions about what, you know, would be right or wrong, but it's just our intuition that it's based on. The concept is just a tool for us to be able to manage that. Just as now the next level of that, then you just apply that to the idea of revelation. Well, we have a religious sentiment because all creatures, all human creatures are, are religious in a sense. And we have a, from the from our depths, we sense something about the other um, and we try to give it, you know, we try to put words on it and we try to we try to come up with myths to describe this. But of course, they're in the end merely myths. I mean, that second, which is really the most um, pernicious and clearest form of, of kind of the epistemology theologically of modernism concerning relation is just one more application of relativism at the level of epistemology philosophically. Bad philosophy run amok in, in um, theology, especially the theology of revelation is really what the root of modernism is. Now, there are all the questions of scriptural exegesis, which in a sense just Garrigou does talk about them, but those are sort of secondary to him in, in so much as he really wants to cut to that nub of the relativism of modernism. And really that by itself then is, is the core of what they agree. That The only next step is, okay, if we can actually know uh, these realities, they're also something more than, than human reason is capable of. And so what you then just start to find yourself bumbling into, in a good way of bumbling, is the, the traditional defense of the supernaturality of faith. So first step is we can know reality. Second step is we can know supernatural realities and articulate them. They're not merely just myths on top of religious experience. Therefore, we can use our notions that we have by experience to articulate the mysteries of faith, but those, those mysteries are supernatural. And so they require the light of faith in order to even, for instance, speak of person in the Trinity. Gardet has a beautiful line, I believe, in uh, Le Donne Revelé, where he says, think of these words, person, society, sign, and he has a couple others, you know, how differently they are used in, in faith compared to when we use them in by merely natural reason. Because, you know, when you speak of the supernatural society that is the mystical body of Christ, when you speak of the sacraments as being signs that cause supernatural grace, whenever you speak of um, you know the persons of the Trinity, which are uncreated persons who are subsistent relations, as affirmed under under the light of faith, they're not only merely something that is intelligible, they're super intelligible, they stretch those notions, and yet we can discourse about them. And hence, that's where, nat that's where supernatural theology is born. So that's kind of maybe some steps to think of, of sort of the kind of standard Garaguvian, Gardeian uh, responses to modernism. Okay. And, therefore, uh, and then therefore, too, we could, we could articulate an idea of dogmatic development, however, that is, 
you know, that is not just merely purely evolutionistic, you know, that it's just changing, right? But that we can do it within the the bounds of this idea that guess what? The truths of faith actually have an intelligibility. It just happens to be a super intelligibility. Yes, this is so we have the modernists on one hand who are evolution of dogma. As you know, of course, we also have the Eastern Orthodox on the other side who criticize the West and say, well, you have this development of doctrine. What is that? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's just corrupting the dogmas. And I think of John Henry Newman and in his work, Development of Doctrine, he applies all these different criteria to distinguish a development from a corruption. He's And just reading them through, he says, there's the preservation of type the continuity of principles, the assimilative power, the logical sequence, the anticipation of its future, conservation action on its past, and chronic vigor. And he goes through all these things and talks about, all about corruptions versus developments. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the criteria that um, Garday and or Gary Goo put forward in that same line? Yeah, well, okay, I'm not totally prepared here because I used to read Garday as being the same as Garrigo. I'm always kind of looking for unities within the tradition. Um, so I have to be careful here. But the I mean the general criteria remains that at best at for Garrigo at best at the development of dogma can only be a relationship of that which is was implicit is now explicit, not that which was potential is now actual. Because the, the relationship between something being implicit and explicit is just the art. It's kind of they don't I'm not sure that I could say that Garrigou has anything like the exact criteria like you have in someone who's searching there like um, uh, John Henry Newman. But, you know, the, the criteria he has are laying out what it looks like to draw something out that was implicit and now making it explicit. You can always look back to the original dogma and say the new formulation was there in the original. It's just a question of it now in articulation being kind of refracted in clearer language. It's kind of the, the one light is being refracted now by a clearer definition. This is why Garrigou insisted on on thinking of definition as the main model, as I think we discussed. Oh, that. yeah, that, we had a good discussion on that last time. Yeah. So I, I, I do need to revisit the section in Don Hay uh, on this because I really don't try. Actually, the whole thing. I have to reread the whole thing. Because I don't trust the later people who say that Garday is the same as Father Marinsola, who says even theological conclusions, which are are drawn in a sense outside the explicitness of revelation, but in continuity with it, can be defined um, as being of faith dogmatically. Now, to say that they're doctrines that are held by what was called ecclesiastical faith might you know, might be appropriate here. That's a really technical set of distinctions. And so I, I just want to say that generally Gardet and Garrigou are the same here. And even if they do differ, they they are within the bounds of still what's what's a lot what's permitted. Yeah. Um, here. Okay. So do you, do you want to elaborate more on any of the works of Gardet? Yeah, so there's a whole other world here. So if he was worried about, you know, and it's interesting his nephew says this, the the methodology of faith. So you've got kind of faith before faith. Because it's not really an ascent of faith, the apologetic uh, rational credibility, and then you have a discussion of how faith goes over into theology in his uh, Donne Crevelle. Um, he then, in his his last decade of life or so, writes, well, "Okay, well, what is if we might call it like te uh, 
tasting faith, faith which tastes the mysteries, mystical experience. He writes a, a two-volume set um, on the structure. It's called The Structure of the Soul and Mystical Experience. Um, so it sounds really abstract. But this, along with a couple of little volumes on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, so Clooney Press, for instance, has a, has a little volume uh, on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the Dominican saints. Um, and he also wrote, he gave some retreats that then were published, I think, after his death on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the Christian life. Um, it's really his his attempt to discuss what is mystical experience in the tradition of the Thomist school talking about the gifts of the Holy, seven gifts of the Holy Spirit and how, you know, uh, the the gifts of understanding, um, understanding science and wisdom and, and well, technically counsel as well. Um, but uh, so understanding knowledge or science and wisdom perfect our faith and our charity um, in a way that actually is pretty apophatic. It's pretty... Um, you know, it's a kind of non-knowing, a knowing that is non-knowing because of the way that um, charity perfects our knowledge of the supernatural mysteries. So he he unpacks both. Here again, it's that faith reason stuff that's in the background, the way that nature is in obediential potency to grace. And then how do we understand the indwelling of the Holy Trinity and its effect that the effect of that indwelling on each of our powers through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially the contemplative gifts, especially the contemplative gifts. Um, so that's what he deals with in those two pretty technical volumes. The first one is somewhat dedicated to defending uh, a kind of agreement between Augustine and St. Thomas on, on the topic of our nature's capacity for grace, um, which is probably in some ways it's controversial because many people read Augustine as being maybe not, he's not as, um, Augustine's clearly not clearly not as clear as post-Trent theology about the distinction between nature and grace, just as many of the fathers aren't. But so Gardet tries to show nonetheless that there is a foundational agreement between them. Um, this was actually, though, this work was the effect of, of him trying to write this book. He tried so hard to write this book. And it's not that I wrote it for him, but the true Christian life. He wrote 800 pages of an ascetical theology. So he was going to do, probably based on his his work teaching morals whenever he was a younger professor, uh, and then his conferences he had been giving over the years to religious and, and priests regarding the mystical life. He was going to write a whole ascetical theology that was based on the idea, though, of our divinization and our life and the virtues. And he writes 800-some pages in, in outline, and he gets stuck talking, you know, when he's starting to talk about uh, or he catches himself getting stuck, maybe we should say, when he's talking about our soul as the receptive subject of grace in the jargon, right? He's a, he's, he's a good Aristotelian. So what is the material cause of grace? Well, the material cause of grace ultimately is our soul as potentially open to grace, but of course not anticipating it. So this is all those questions about nature and grace. And so instead of writing this book in earnest in 800 pages, he, um, he switches and writes the the book on the structure of the soul. Um, and so that's sort of his last major work and he never comes back to the true Christian life. But funny enough, his nephew, his nephew kind of goes over and bothers Jacques Maritain and says to him, Hey, you're the, you're the editor of this series. Can we, can we publish my, a couple of my uncle's articles? Um, and can I tell, tell a summary of what he was going to do and then publish something maybe that he hadn't published before dying. Um, and so that's what this book uh, contains. And so it, it's sort of like there's an outline 
of the it's a full moral theology of sorts but in the mode of of kind of ascetical theology so it's it's not um how to put it it's not kind of in the scientific form of a commentary on the summa but it's it's got a whole outline of basically the entire moral part of the summa at the beginning rather brilliantly exposited by his nephew but heavily drawing on his notes because you can tell where the nephew is switching into his uncle's own words and then an essay on grace as divinization you know the real meaning of beatitude is is that we are made to be you know not merely servants but friends of god and what does that mean um probably the most brilliant in one text outline of christian prudence um that i've ever seen the infused virtue of prudence so in all these discussions nowadays um on the topic of conscience and it was actually this that started me on this project was the stupid things that are said about conscience nowadays was i thought well i'm going to publish something that's much better than that uh this text provides great light on what well-formed christian conscience involves and all the various virtues that are involved um and there's much he says here that's in line with what garagu thinks about the virtue of prudence actually too i think in some ways because this is theological, it has a profundity you don't always find in Garrigou, because Garrigou doesn't talk about it in, in length. And then he talks about the virtue of religion quite beautifully, some really great stuff on devotion, um, and then the actually prayer. I find the prayer section great, because people say so many confused things about prayer, because, you know, at least if you're going to be a good scholastic, you know, uh, what, what came to be called mental prayer is not quite what a, a scholastic means by saying oratio. Um, prayer is an act of justice. Um, and you know, mental prayer very often and deal, deals with like acts of faith and hope and charity as well. Um, and father, um, Fenton, which I'm sure your, your listenership, they're aware of father Fenton student, other student of Garrigou. Uh, he wrote a little book on prayer. He says like, there's so much that's said about prayer because people are inexact about it. They don't see that technically speaking prayer in the scholastic sense is a, t- is one of the acts of justice it's the practical intellect, you know, raising to God, you know, it's supplication. And then mental prayer should be, you know, set, you know, over here in the mystical life of the theological virtues. They mix it all together and they write stuff that sounds nice, but it's not helpful in a lot of ways because they don't make the right distinctions. Gardet does it without sounding maybe as, as um, like a scholastic professor as, as uh, Fenton does. So if anyone has tried to read this book by Fenton, uh, which God bless, God bless Clooney Press that they publish all this stuff, right? Um, if anyone's tried to read this book and has found it dry, go to Gardet first and read the, the end of it. Um, if you read the end of this volume, uh, you can then go back and see what, what Fenton's getting at. Um, it's a really good little, like it's like a little summa of, uh, I think, of, of Thomistic moral theology. In the sense that like if you... If you understand the stuff that's in here, you won't go astray when you go into the details. And there again, you see that characteristic of him that uh, Father Gar- uh, Garagu saw. He can point out the peaks of the mountain range, so you don't go astray. Then you you kind of know what to you know what the basic points that you better keep in mind about grace, the theological virtues, the infused moral virtues, um, above all the role of prudence, which is very important in our in our acts. Um, and then among our moral virtues, how religion is the primary moral virtue uh, of Christians and how to properly um, understand that. So, Excellent. Well, we have uh, one question. If anybody else has any other questions or Nicholas, do you want to 
jump in. Uh, Andrea says this. Garday seems to oppose Aristotelian causality to Platonic participation. And he's all on the Aristotelian side. But Thomas unites causality with participation. Now, I'm I'm not an expert. Uh, Andrew also comments further. Participation is the key of Thomas's metaphysics, and Garday, like most Thomas, seems to miss completely this fundamental point. Now, I, I'm no expert, but I know that there are sort of Aristotelian Thomas, and there's sort of a more Platonic reading of Thomas as Thomas as well. Um, Dr. Minard, can you first of all introduce? some of these concepts for cool. non-specialists absolutely and then comment on what andrea is saying here yeah so i i would like i'm gonna be i think i'm gonna be this bold to say this and but maybe it's andrea actually i i don't know the because the last name well, he, he's an italian yes that's a I would counsel against the the use of the quotes around Thomas that way because it's snarky and dismissive. So I, I'm going to be pretty direct about that. I find that to be rude and not a way to read authors. So I hate to get that direct, but I, I really just don't think that's a helpful way to begin. Um, because now we can recognize the the substance, though, that your critique is correct in this sense. So um, textbooks or for beginners. Um, Plato, I mean, Plato is known in his uh, metaphysics of having this, this central theme of the ideas that in order to justify things in, that we experience actually being able to be definable, actually to be intelligible, there needs to be some intelligent, there, there must be some intelligible um, first um, idos or form on which then our lesser reality is modeled. So things, in a sense, in a Platonic world are models of or copies of or reflections of uh, images of exemplars. This will be this will become sort of consolidated in Neoplatonism, where you'll get an entire schema of how there are forms of there's be, you know, being in itself and unity, which is in a sense beyond being. And these all cascade down. There's, you know, the just in itself of which each and every act of justice is just a kind of far copy of human nature in itself, of which humans are individually copies of. There's an emanation of these from kind of primordial unity down to the, the multiplicity of matter, which is very dark seeming because, you know, the individual is far less intelligible than the definable. What is humanity in itself or, you know, beauty in itself. Each of these are higher levels of kind of spiritual and intelligible reality. And most famously, you know, in a kind of, you know, first philosophy course that you give as an undergrad, everyone wants to say Aristotle rejected all of that. You know, at least he said, you know, he had to take those forms, bring them down into the world, shove them into things because there are only things. And then we know the forms of things because by experience, we're able to sort of abstract from multiple things, the one thing that unites them and then, you know, articulate that in knowledge. And so, you know, Aristotle in like that famous picture, the school of Athens has his hand coming down, telling his master, bring the forms down to reality. We're going to start with experience first and not end up in this sort of huge up in the sky, um, you know, metaphysical speculating. Interestingly, later Neoplatonists who come after Aristotle's time actually see themselves as taking both Aristotle and Plato. They take Aristotle. He's very good, they say, at doing things in this world. Uh, and then they add Plato to him and say, but we're going to go to the forums and make our big schema of the ideas. Uh, 
through the through the influence of not only Augustine but also um, you know the the shadowy figure known as Pseudo Dionysius. I mean, the, in the Middle Ages, known just as you know, uh, it's Dionysius or Dionysus, the the Areopagite uh, from Pauline fame. Uh, but he's really really a, a fifth sixth century uh, Syriac monk who's heavily influenced by Proclean Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism is deep in the bones of Western in different ways, also in the East, of course, but Western. Uh, scholasticism. You cannot read, and this is where Andrea is completely correct, you cannot read 12th and 13th century texts, including St. Thomas, without deeply appreciating how how much Platonism is operative in him. And one of the elements of Platonism is this idea, or the idea is kind of a bad word, this metaphysical notion, things are copies of, of their primordial reality, or in more specifically even platonic terms things participate they are by being a reflection they have partial reflections of what is holy in the transcendent reality but instead of having justice be a kind of strange immaterial idea like plato what do christians do you see this in augustine and then you're going to see it all throughout the, the medievals you shove all those those ideas into god for all things are copies in a sense of god he makes all things after his likeness, although us in a unique way after his image and likeness, separate issue. But everything in a sense participates in God who is being in all of its plenitude is normally, of course, the way that a Thomist would speak of this. And so ultimately, this is why you can prove really the existence of God for a Thomist from any reality, because every reality, insofar as it at least has you know, the nature, for lack of better terms, of being and of existence, it is a partaking or to be even human, to be any kind of finite being, is to partake in the nature of what it is to be, and even in the most distant reflection. And so, you know, the idea of participation kind of underground, uh, undergirds the deepest fibers of our being, because we participate in that which God has in fullness. Later Thomists tend to to miss this and not make as much of it, because it's not a big thing in Aristotle, and there's an Aristotelianizing of uh, St. Thomas's thought later on. Uh, and Gardaig does come out of, of the tradition that's that's trained in, in the manuals and John of St. Thomas and others of this tradition, which will be more Aristotelianized. Um, I, I just challenge, though, Andrea, to, to read the, the Structure of the Soul text, where he deals with participation in grace, and not ask yourself if even though he doesn't emphasize participation the way that Thomists of the 1940s and 50s and thereafter did, kind of recovering the Neoplatonism of St. Thomas, um, does he not nonetheless, as by being a good Thomist, he in the end has to use the notion of participation, you know, without making it a big theme. You know, you have to talk about in what sense do we partake in the divine nature without being pantheists, and yet really and truly still holding to Trent, you know, be affected in ourselves by grace as a formal cause of our sanctification. Um, so you're correct in noting the, the Aristotelian, like overly Aristotle side of a lot of uh, scholastics. This is something that, that definitely happened throughout scholasticism. I think, A, it's so dismissive the way that people just say, and therefore we don't have to listen to people from that generation. Um, and B, um, I don't know, I, I see no way forward unless we, we have teachers from another generation, you know, we try to sort of find the best in them. Um, 
So, th- but it is true. It's true. There, there are things that are missing in the way they treat analogy because they don't appreciate this. And I think that this is, but I think it's a problem, but not, it doesn't make what they say false. It just needs development. Um, so yeah, the point is, a, a so, yeah, this simple, summation here. simple summation, well put is that the platonic appreciation for the hierarchy of beings that, that being finds its kind of self refracted at different levels. Think about how being is so different in inorganic being, living beings, um, sensate beings, us, the angels and God. Thomas very often has this awareness of that. Truth be told, in a very early article by Gardet, which I reread out of fear that I would say something wrong in traditionalist company, where he defends the possibility of a Thomistic rapprochement with evolution, he actually draws on a text from the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is incredibly Neoplatonic. Um, now, he doesn't make it the central thing to say it's Neoplatonic, but this idea of the chain of being, which is very much a Platonic sort of thing, is operative all the time in Aquinas because he sees the way that all things reflect at different levels God and then deploys Aristotle's language to be able to discuss it with regard to the causes. But he does it in a way that stays Aristotelian because guess what? Participation bespeaks a certain kind of causality. And this is very, now our technical last moment. It's extrinsic formal causality. Um, you know, in, in particular, it's, you know, the the kind of, it's like what, what the artisan has. You can't understand what a piece of art is without understanding the idea fashion that, that the artist has, you know. It's like you, you only understand maybe how to put it is that, ah, that's a hammer when you realize how to use a hammer because there's there's an activity that that artisans and artists use hammers for. That same kind of analysis of extrinsic formal causality is exactly what St. Thomas uses to link upwards by using a kind of developed Aristotelianism the chain of being to God. So I, I agree. I, I, I'm very much a supporter of this because I live in the Byzantine East and the connections with Neoplatonism are the closest ones to the Byzantine East. Yeah. Um, but I just caution against sort of dismissal of, you know, some of the greats of a previous generation merely because they happen to not be us. Yeah, certainly. Uh, we'll take one more question here. Uh, this is an interesting one from Vox Populi. What is the notion of Christ the King in Thomism? Does it play a significant role? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you could comment on maybe Garde and Garigou because, as we've noted, historically they're living through this time of secularization in France. Yep. And then this becomes even more acute during the, the Gaullist period between Charles de Gaulle versus uh, Patin and mm-hmm. this whole breakup of France, which is an immediate precursor to the Second Vatican Council because it comes out of France, as Kerwin brings out in his book. Mm-hmm. So can you comment at all on uh, Christ the King in Thomas, Gardet, or Garigou? Yeah. So, I mean, right, technically, you know, Christ the King in that the sense of that particular uh, feast day, I mean, it's, Gardet is alive. When is the, when is that added to the Roman calendar? Is that uh, Benedict the 15th or no, actually, it's, oh, it's Pius it's the 11th. I'm sorry. Or so. Yeah, I think it's 20, 24, 25. Yeah, 20, that's right. I made a mistake. This is why you see, I almost made it again. I place it in my mind in the thirties. Um, but so it's in the late twenties. So Gardet is still alive, but he's a pretty old man, basically just responding to critiques about teeny little issues in the spiritual theology stuff. Right. So you have to think more in line with his earlier writing. And so he doesn't write explicitly on this, except where he talks about, like, for instance, the virtue of justice. He's mostly concerned with the the essence of justice, just as regard, or not not justice, but religion as a subspecies of justice, 
um, and as a true form of justice. But the things he says implicitly basically make the, the point that as a form of justice, it's a public recognition of God in the in the civil order. He at one point notes, too, there's an image he uses with some sorrow about how, you know, the France was first a, a, a Catholic state and slowly but surely just has these these leftover like tiny, you know, leftover. Um, they're like the the organs because he, he himself does actually accept a kind of mitigated evolution, which actually Garagu doesn't fault him for quite explicitly, to be clear, too. Um, and he says it's like the organs that are left over from earlier stages of evolution, but they have no meaning now is what he said. The French, the French, um, civil, whatever, whatever office they had for regulating rights. It was like, they have no sense of even what the state's, the state owes to religion. So I would take him as being in agreement with what you find in De Revelazione, where Garagu lays out the fact that, you know, the, the sufficient pro promulgation of the truths of faith require civil recognition of, um, you know, of Catholicism, you know, ultimately in the end, right? Precisely because Christ, you know, Christ's life is to affect both grace and nature. Garagu takes very explicitly in the line from Bellarmine, but also uh, Torquemada, um, the the idea, though, of, of clearly distinguishing the two orders, that the civil common good is temporal, and it's only insofar as that temporal good is involved with spiritual goods that the church exercises her indirect authority in the doings of the state. But of course, that there's all kinds of ways that happens through the moral legislation of the state. And Garagu writes an article on this, which you can find in the, the volume I put together for Clooney. It's not here, it's over. Oh, there's one over here. Um, Philosophizing in Faith. There's an essay in there he writes during the con condemnation of uh, L'Action Francaise. Um, where where he discuss where he discusses it and you know sort of prays for for some emendation over at L'Action Française you know so that they can not lose what's good in them he says, um, and so uh, you know the the separation between the two is is a kind of indirection but it's real you know just to, it's not really a separation as much as a distinction and that's sort of how Garrigou he even says that at one point explicitly you know ultimately as well though this all comes down to the fact that all of human nature ultimately is created to live within the supernatural order. That doesn't mean that nature and grace are, are slurred together, but the capital grace of Christ as the head of the church should flow down not only over us as divinized sons and daughters of, of God through faith, hope, and charity, but also should impregnate um, civilization as a whole. Because in the end, you know, in the end, the ultimate intention of all creation is union with God in Christ. And Garagu takes that very seriously in the line of the Salamanca Carmelites regarding um, that whole question of um, kind of Christological primacy. So, you know, ultimately when you read, is it, is it Quas Primus, right? That's Quas yeah, Primus. Quas Primus. When you read Quas Primus, you know, about the, the headship of Christ, you know, it is the headship of Christ over all things, yes, including then the, the civil order. But why is that? You know, because ultimately in the last intention, the ultimate intention of all things, the order of, we could say, Christic grace, the order of the hypostatic union, is the source of our divinization, which presupposes, of course, that we have a nature, because you can't have, you can't start talking about the supernatural without having the you know, natural receptive subject of the gift of supernatural grace. 
Um, and so Christ stands at the center of, of all things uh, because of that. So that's both that's that's both in line with Garrigou, but then in Gardet, um, you actually see that sort of play out in a slightly different way in his outline for the true Christian life, where he places some of the Christology earlier than you normally do in morals to make the point about the relationship of Christ's activity in and in us, um, you know, through it, through the church. So, I mean, that's talking around a little bit, you know, but I think it is, it's, you know, it's present in Gardet. It's so clear in Garrigou that just go read the end of De Revelazione and read a couple of those essays in Philosophizing on Faith and you'll see it there. Excellent. Well, Dr. Monard, it's it's been a pleasure once again. Thank you so much for illuminating so much of these issues, some some quite technical, uh, and uh, we really appreciate your expertise. So thanks for coming on again. You're welcome. Great to be on, both of you. So uh, everyone go to uh, Dr. Monard's website. You can buy all his books, buy, buy a copy for yourself and for a priest. Buy copies of, I, I want to insist this to my, because I think that your your listeners like it, even though it's from Ascension Press. I know traditionalists might think that this is just some kind of thing they're not going to be interested in. You should buy Made by God, Made for God. It's written for lay people. It's very understandable. It's completely, I, I joke in the introduction, I call it baby Gardet. It's my baby version of Gardet. Um, but I'm very glad to see that Richard DeClue made it at the end for... Uh, for this discussion, my friend. But I wanted to say, I want to pitch that because it's the most understandable of these texts. It has footnotes, but like they're end notes. Um, it's not, it's, you know, you may think it's some feel good book. It's, it's basically baby Garrigou and baby Gardet is how that book is. I think written. Excellent. Well, there's certainly a, a great need to have a proper formation in moral theology. And this sounds like a, a great text which is a introduction to moral theology made by God made for God Catholic morality explained by Matthew Minard. Christmas is coming soon. Yeah, exactly. So buy one for yourself and for someone else. So. Oh, excellent. I mean, I'm not just for my profit, but I mean, I do, I do do this as a kind of, you know, quasi apostolic exercise. It comes yes, from teaching. It's based on my teaching. I've taught multiple, multiple reiterations of moral theology, both for Byzantine and Latin students so excellent well I, i'd be very interested to look at that text from your background teaching byzantine and latin and just a a, a a great introduction to moral theology excellent well let's uh let's finalize this with uh the i'll bring the russian catholic icon of our lady of fatima and ask our lady to give us a true participation in grace as she is the mediatrix of all graces Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. More honorable than the cherubim and more glorious beyond compare than the seraphim. Thou who art truly Theotokos, we magnify thee. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King. Amen.